Episode number 80, J. O'Callaghan, Learning About Stories by Telling to My Children. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Children. I am so thrilled that you have made it here tonight, this morning, this afternoon, whatever time it is for you there in your in your beautiful life. I hope that you have found the heart of storytelling because I can tell you that tonight, tonight we are talking to it. We are talking to one of the living embodiments of storytelling in America today. A man who... Let me. Uh, this is the best introduction I have for the man. Jail Callahan. Jail Callahan. A few years ago, I was I was on the bus. I was in the Audubon Expedition Institute, and I was on this bus, and we were going through Maine, and we were doing Newfoundland. And one night, somebody said, "Oh, oh, you have you heard Jail Callahan?" And of course, I knew Jail Callahan because I was a storyteller. But everyone else on the bus said, "Yes." Now, I can't name a single other storyteller in the world who everybody in the bus would have said yes to, but everyone in the bus said, yeah, we heard of him. Well, maybe one person said no. And, and, then, and then they said, well, he, he did this thing called The Great Onk. And, and I was like, what, what? And I said, well, you've got to listen to it. And so we got the tape recorder out, and we had the batteries, and we were around a campfire, and we started listening around a campfire to a tape player rendition of, of J.O. Callahan. And we were spellbound, just totally spellbound. And so... I just want to really thank you, Jay, for coming on the show. Wow, what a lovely introduction. Well, I'm not done yet. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me, let me tell them a little, because I'm sure there are some people out in the world who haven't heard some of the things you've done. Uh, let me introduce you properly. Jay O'Callaghan grew up in a section of Brookline, Massachusetts, which is called Pill Hill, because so many doctors live there. After graduating from Holy Cross College, he took a tour of the Navy, and that took, that took him across the Pacific. And returning to Massachusetts, he taught and eventually became dean at the Windham School in Boston, which his parents had founded. Jay has told stories to students at Stonehenge, to adults in the heat of Niger, Africa, to theatergoers in Dublin and London, and at storytelling festivals in Scotland, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. His stories have also been heard on national public radios, All Things Considered. Jay's stories also include commissioned works like The Spirit of the Great Auk, Pouring the Sun, Edna Robinson, and Father Joe. When he isn't on the road, Jay runs a writing workshop at his home. Jay has just finished a political novel called Harry's Our Man and is creating a story commissioned by NASA for its 50th anniversary. So thanks again, Jay, for coming on the show. You're very welcome. And I thought I might begin, is that okay, Eric, to just jump in? Yes. I, I thought I might begin telling just a few minutes of a story made up years ago called Michael the Grasshopper. And I thought I'd tell a few minutes because I'd like to refer back to the things I learned just making stories up for my children. <whistles> Matilda the grasshopper made her way along the cold earth. She wanted to plant her eggs, but the ground was too hard. And then, by the apple tree, the ground was soft and she drilled her abdomen into the earth. When she got the length of her abdomen, she opened four prongs. Out came a tiny egg. She put a, a little bit of sticky stuff on it so it would hold together. Hope you live, Michael. Hope you're all right. Then she lifted up her abdomen and dropped 24 eggs. She dropped a white spongy glue around them, made a case to protect the eggs, but there was nothing more she could do. It was cold. She would die soon. I hope you all live. I hope no skunk gets you tonight. And she left. And that night a skunk did come. 
The skunk had sharp claws, and the skunk smelled one of the apples first and tried the apple oh, sour. <sniffs> then the skunk, smelling the eggs, began to rip at the earth and snap. The skunk heard a snap and frightened ran off. The snap was made by Mother Earth. She didn't want Michael or the others to die. The snow came. The eggs were frozen, but that didn't kill them. What was dangerous was spring. In the spring, a worm could go into the case and begin to eat the eggs. One spring day, Michael woke. Tiny Michael woke and his five eyes sprung open. They would never close again. A grasshopper can't close its eyes. He was tinier than an apple seed. He, he moved, and Michael, he broke through the, the egg case, and he went up and up and up, and he got stuck between two pebbles. He relaxed, and he squiggled through the pebbles, and he got up on the earth. And he wiggled his head, and he broke... He broke the little hatching sack he was in. And the first thing he did is to breathe. Oh, 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 the air mixed with his blood. It felt wonderful. And then the sun. <laughs> he loved the sun. <laughs> with his two large eyes, he saw something way above him. What are you? You a monster? You going to hurt me? Can't you talk? The monster was the apple tree. You dumped something. And Micah, with his three tiny eyes, said, What are you? Oh, grass, grass. <laughs> he began to eat the grass. <laughs> All week, Michael grew larger and larger. At the end of the week, something was wrong. <clears throat> he had to get rid of this outer skin or he would die. He sat up and cracked the outer skin. He wiggled out of the outer skin as if it were pajamas, and he stepped out, and his new skin was so sticky, he leaned against the grass and stuck to it, so he... <clears throat> He pulled his leg away. In six weeks he got six new skins, and now he was a full grasshopper. And for the first time he leapt up and tried his wings. He had four wings, two glider wings, and two propeller wings. He was so pleased he began to sing, I'm glad to be a grasshopper, a grasshopper, a grasshopper. I'm glad to be a grasshopper and hop across the field. Mother Earth came disguised as a dull brown rock. Michael, I'm very proud of you. I like your song. You're very handsome, but be careful of the witch nearby. She doesn't like singing. Oh, I'm not afraid of anyone. Watch my trick, Michael. He spun around, and she was gone. In the morning he was singing, I'm glad to be a grasshopper, a grasshopper. And the witch hated singing and said to the leathery old frog, frog, Make the grasshopper unhappy so he doesn't sing. I give you flies for a week. Brrrr, the frog thought of the perfect plan. Grasshopper, come down here. You're ugly. I'm not ugly. Why'd you say that? Mother Earth said I'm handsome. She likes my song. You're ugly. You're useless. Go away. Michael was too young to know he'd been tricked, and he limped off. If I'm useless, look above you. You see the butterflies? Mother Earth saved her colors for those. You can be a butterfly. What? You can be a butterfly. Go into the center of the forest. There are three spiders with a red stone. Get it? Michael started into the forest. And that's the beginning of his journey. So like many stories, particularly long ones, it's a journey. A journey to get the red stone, and he finds out later the red stone might crush him. But like any journey, any adventure, there are allies you meet, and there are things you learn. So that's the beginning of a story made up for my children. And at that time, I was just experimenting. You know, what can a story be about? I, I just made up stories for my children, but no long ones. And I wondered. So I got a book from the library, and I was fascinated. Grasshoppers have five eyes, two large eyes that see a distance, three small eyes, like a triangle, they see what's up close. 
and the mother drills straight into the earth and protects the eggs with a case. So all of these facts were fascinating. And that led me into telling some stories about worms, other stories. and So that's just the beginning. So let me lead it to that and see what questions that might lead. Well, you started with, with working with your own kids. I started with my kids uh, first when I was a teenager. I had a little brother and sister, nine and ten years younger. And I was just a freshman in high school. And that's the first storytelling I remember. would be in the back of the car, maybe going to Maine or going to Cape Cod, and the little brother and sister would be fighting. And so I would say, give me your hand. And I would take the palm of their hands and say, hey, Mickey, look at that line. Once upon a time, Mickey was floating on a, a large log in the middle of a strange lake. And look, well, the story might be very, very short, but I would be holding her hand, looking at a line in her hand. She was the heroine of the story, so that, that meant a lot of attentiveness. And then my brother would say, tell me a story. So I began telling hand stories only to children, never to an adult. Even in college at a party, if there were kids around, I would seek them out and tell a hand story. And then when I got married, I had these two listeners, two little kids. That really began drawing me into storytelling. I can remember reading Richard Scarry's book. And there was this line, Pierre the Paris Policeman, and I would read it to Teddy this way, Pierre the Paris Policeman. What, what is the title of his book? I think it's Richard Scarry's Tour of Europe. So it's lots of different countries. And for the Paris part, he has this, uh, this kind of fox dressed in a policeman's uniform. And the lines of Pierre the Paris Policeman was directing traffic one day. But I remember them because I made a rhythm up. Pierre de Paris man was directing traffic one day. And Ted would say, say it right if I ever did it differently. So I was learning something about rhythms. And I would read Gingerbread Man. Run, run, fast as you can. Can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And the rhythm, he really liked the rhythm. So I was learning something about rhythm and song and stories. And then I began to use that in these longer stories, like Michael the Grasshopper. You know, Michael singing, I'm glad to be a grasshopper, a grasshopper, a grasshopper. I'm glad to be a grasshopper and hop across the field. I was learning that storytelling is sound, and you can play with sound. And of course, growing up with uh, lots of reading, I wasn't aware that you could play, play with sound that much. Did you have singing training? Did I have training? No. I had singing training once I started to be a full-time storyteller. Then I needed singing training because I needed to protect my voice. So I, for years and years, went to a Blair McCluskey in Duxbury, Massachusetts. He had worked with lots of actors and worked with politicians, including John Kennedy when he was running for president. Uh, and that became very important to learn how to protect my voice and to warm my voice up. And once it's warmed up, then using these rhythms. But that was one of the things I learned with my children, that rhythms and repetition, uh, sound can bring a character alive. Let me just do, do one more. This is Jim May, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. a story called Raspberries. And the story of Raspberry begins, begins like this. Come on, Dory, let's go, Dory. Everything I touch falls flat. Come on, Dory. Simon the Eggman flapped the reins. He was coming into town. He could hear the kids snickering. <laughs> Look at Simon. <laughs> What's he got under that hat? Wonder where he was, that hat. They always laughed at Simon because he pulled his hat so far down you couldn't see his hair or his eyebrows. You couldn't see if he was smiling, but you knew he wasn't, not Simon. Oh, Dory. 
of the sound of Simon's voice. You learn a lot about the character just from that sound of the voice. Come on, boy. Everything I touch turns flat. So there's a rhythm to his voice, and I was learning about that, about rhythms and sound identifying a character. When you hear Michael the Grasshopper, you sense that lightness. Glad to be a grasshopper, a grasshopper, a grasshopper. So it's not just a rhythm. It tells a lot about newness. He's a brand new grasshopper, about lightness, about happiness. Then once he begins the journey into the darkness, where the sun can't warm him, then he hears a sound. A whole army of black ants are marching toward Michael. God, pick up any hole. Twantu, who are you? Who am I? I'm Michael the Grasshopper. Who are you? Sergeant Godfrey of Godfrey Company. You have to move. We're marching on. I'm resting. I'm I'm going to be a butterfly. You're fine as you are. No need to change. It's my business. No need to change. Godfrey Company, forward march. And all of the ants were chanting, Nonsense, nonsense. He wants to be a nonsense. Want to be a butterfly. Nonsense, nonsense. So again, just playing around with my children, going from reading books, reading a bit of Finnegan's Wake one night when my son was just three in the bathtub, and finding that he loved the sound. He loved the sound. I've got a, I've got a line here from Finnegan's Wake. So listen to this. Gents and latymen, full stoppers and semi-colonials, hybrids and lubberbreds, Eaton's within a space, and weary wide space it wast. It goes on like that. But the sound of the words enchanted a three-year-old just because it was playing with sounds. So that was the first thing I learned with my children, that it was a medium of sound, rhythm, repetition. And of course, a medium where you uh, where you touched deep emotions. So did you feel that by by being this free with your kids, by letting yourself really explore this, not only were you setting a really great example for them, but you were sort of daring yourself in some ways forward. Yes, I was learning something about trust and listeners. And Eric and you listeners is a terrific freedom with your own children. And I think they understood that, that the story didn't have to work, and I suppose most of them didn't. I was just making them up on the spot. And it was just the three of us, Ted and my daughter Laura and myself, and we might be going to the dump, or we might be raking leaves and would stop for a minute. I'd take a leaf and say, look at this leaf, once upon a time. So there was that freedom and play. And that is very different, of course, from being in front of 200 children in a school. Uh, Then you've got to have a story generally that works. But this time of freedom is really important to have a listener. It can be an adult, where you're just saying, I'm, I'm just playing. And you may say, quoting my friend Doug Lipman, you know, you may say, I just want a listener, or I just want appreciations, because I'm, I'm just beginning with this story. But that was all understood with my children. They just, they just wanted the time to play with, play with the story. And as they got older, six, seven, eight, then I, I would say, well, how do you rate the story? You know, one to ten. And they would say, go, Daddy, go. They didn't want any <laughs> rating. They just wanted to get to the next story. Uh, no, no rating. So those two things, Eric and listeners, trust and freedom and play, uh, they, they're wonderful. And those you can do with a friend, you can do with a child, uh, and it's much harder to do that with, with a, a big audience. But you need the playtime. You need the listening time. You need somebody you really trust and can play with. Now, many of my regular listeners are going to think you're, you're a fixer because I've talked about this for a long time. My, my little sister, uh, when she was four, depended on me every night for stories when I was eight. So I know what you're talking about. When the kids are younger, there's less, you know, they're more willing to accept whatever material. And I think it's a really honorable way to learn storytelling to just go into your local preschool and work with that age first and then work your way up, you know? Yes, absolutely. I did have a 
a very small library here in Marshfield, Massachusetts. It was a big old library, uh, big in, in terms of warmth, and six or eight kids would show up, and I would just make stories up on the spot. So sometimes they would work, and sometimes they didn't. And one day I decided, I think I'll make up a story ahead, uh, at least have a skeleton and bring that in. I can remember being in a barn, a big old barn, and looking up in that barn, and somebody had scratched something with their fingernail. And that fascinated me. It was a kind of curve. And suddenly I could see this sailor who was curved, and he was hurt, and he was angry. And he became Vargo. I like the sound of the name Vargo. And Vargo... He was hurt a long time ago, and he appears only in the fog in England. And I went and told that story. <laughs> I got a call from my mother that one night. <laughs> Saying it was a little too scary, so I had to get on the phone and tell a happy one to the child. Uh, so I, what I hear over and over again is this descriptive imagery. I hear that when you're telling the story, you have a clear image that's in your head. Images really guide me. Uh, when I made the story of raspberries up, and by the way, that was made up because my son was four and he was crying one day. He had banged his leg. And I came out, it was summer, and I said, what's wrong? He said, I broke my leg. I said, I don't think you broke your leg. You're standing up. No, I broke my leg. I put him in a bathtub and I said, I'll tell you a funny story. And Raspberry just began. I said, Ted, once it was this farmer, everything went wrong. That's a funny story. Let me tell the story. And there was a short story about Simon, the egg man, coming into town with a hat pulled so far down. And something in me was intrigued with the hat. And that's the image that holds the whole story together, just a hat pulled down. And at the very end of the story... The hat is removed, and Simon kind of comes back to life. He's a baker, and he's been betrayed by his baker friends, so he gives baking up. But that image, it fascinated me. And the, the hat is not described, so when I tell it in the school, afterwards I'll say, well, what did the hat look like? And sometimes I would get a hundred drawings, and there'll be a hundred different hats. <laughs> I love them imagining it. But, but yes, Eric, Im images just are so powerful. So I hear this balance. I hear this balance, though, between the image in your head, but a willingness to not completely describe the image to the listener. Because you just said you're not describing the hat. You keep yes. talking about the hat, all the things that happen with the hat, but you don't actually say what the hat looks like. So the least listener can interpret that differently. Yes, and and I think that's the power of an image. It. It goes deeper than words can. It touches a mystery that words can't. I mean, we know Simon's been hurt. We know he's, we later learn in the story, he's been hurt. Uh, but the mystery of, you know, any human being, a child or an adult, needing to hide away for a while, and that, that's a mystery. And Hat gets to it more deeply than saying, well, this person's been hurt. But I let, I let the image kind of draw me. And if I'm lost in creating the story and a week goes by or a year goes by, still that image eventually draws me so that I can complete the story. Uh, I'll mention one thing. There's an adult story called Pouring the Sun, and that's about immigrant community in the steel-making city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And the, the image that I love in that story is of a blue flame Always for a hundred years at Bethlehem Steel, was, there was this blue flame for excess gas. The pipe was a hundred feet high. So everyone for a hundred years in that immigrant community, they saw that blue flame. And in a way, that blue flame touches, it touches the life of those, all those communities, 45 ethnic groups. Somehow that blue flame, it touches their lives, their struggles, uh, their accomplishments, uh, their difficulties. But again, it's a very simple image, and it's barely described. It's just there. I, I want to come back to that. But first, I, I've just been thinking about this. We started with the idea of sound. Yes. It feels today like many storytellers are caught in the use of words, which is a wonderful place to be. But very rarely have I seen other storytellers use sound the way you use it. Um, with It's almost like you use sounds the way some people use characters. 
uh, like during the great, is it the great awk? Is that the yes. right pronunciation? In yes. the great awk, you have this sort of, um, hey, and whoa, and, and <laughs> it kind of expresses, you know, I love to kayak, and I've kayaked long distance. Oh, oh and, yeah. And when I was doing that, I did it actually after having heard your piece. Um, oh. No, no, I did it the mo- I did it six months before I heard your piece. That's what happened. And And when I heard your piece, I was brought immediately back to the experience of kayaking long distance because you just were expressing the feeling of the waves and the feeling of the ocean, the up and down. Um, It's almost like the ocean was present in that sort of up and down motion of your voice. Wow. I love hearing that. And for for those who don't know the story, there's a rhythm. This is a a story about Dick Wheeler who made a 1,500 mile paddle. But the rhythm is paddle on the left side, paddle on the right, paddle up a wave and down the other side, paddle on the left side, paddle on the right. And when he gets very tired, that might change. Paddle on the left side, paddle on the right. And I found, Eric and you listeners, that uh, that I'm very drawn to work stories because there's something elemental in a story called The Herring Shed. It's about a young woman in Nova Scotia in, in a herring shed. And this is the rhythm. Thumb in the gill, open the mouth, slip it on the rod in the head and shed. They're stringing heron, thumb in the gill, open the mouth, slip it on the rod in the head and shed. And that rhythm is all through the story. And and when there's tragedy in the story, the rhythm changes, but it's there. Thumb in the rill, thumb in the gill. He lay in the ground, the cold ground, ground that was cold as the head and shed. Somewhere called Dunkirk, Harry was dead. But again, it's something elemental, and the way I try to get to that is rhythm and song. Uh, So I love you saying that, Eric. So let's go back to this idea of creating these really long stories. Because I'm really drawn to that in my work. You know, I'm I'm right now working on a seven-CD story. Whoa. (laughs) Right? So, but each piece, it's like a, a thousand and one Arabian Nights, you know, stories within stories within stories. Yeah. So yes. each story itself stands alone. But I'm really interested because you seem to take on these really big projects and then you do them as theater. Um, and that's a whole other issue of how you sell them, and how you market them. But you create these big projects. And can you describe a little bit of that, that process? Yes, you know, I started this with Michael the Grasshopper and it's one of the stories that I, I learned about. Oh, the image carrying you on. It's something about journey and something about rhythm. In that story, Michael wants to get a redstone because he thinks that will make him a, a butterfly. He gets the redstone, and it's an extraordinary burden. And the redstone stands for, now that I look back, on, on, on all of us taking on burdens uh, and learning, really learning from struggles we take on and uh, changing, transforming. He becomes he becomes grown up and is glad to be a grasshopper. So what did I learn about shape? Well, I learned I learned something about struggles and finding clear characters and giving them time. Michael the grasshopper was originally told twenty five minutes to kids. Uh, that's a long story for first and second graders. But I found I was drawn to that, and then I wanted to know, well, can I do an adult story that's that's long and yet for adults? Now, I'm a brand new storyteller, three years at it. And the first chance I had was going up to Nova Scotia for a month's vacation and meeting a blind woman who was about 70 but infirm and a, a wonderful old man, Charlie Robertson. And we sat down. Uh, we got the key to our cottage from them. I sat down day after day and listened to them talk about their lives. And suddenly the story came. It was all about this this woman, Maggie, Maggie Thomas, a real person about her real life. But somehow my, my imagination was drawn not to her life at 70, but her life at 14. And this story uh, just began to blossom. And it was the first adult long story, and it's not very long, it's 25 or 30 minutes, but I, I realized I needed length so that you could meet her family and see how hard their lives were. Her, her mother is blind, her dad 
is just struggling the way they did in Nova Scotia. You cut wood to make a living. You fish to make a living. Uh, you raise some wheat to make a living. And it's got a son over there fighting World War II. And I wanted to get in Churchill in the story because Charlie Robinson said, well, you know, in World War II, we used to listen to Churchill. He kind of got us through the war. So I wanted something of Churchill there to give the story a breadth. It's, it's really about three people in a herring shed, but it's during a war. It's during a world war where families like the family of these poor people are sending their only son, and he dies during the story. Well, somehow doing all that in 10 minutes, you know, it, it, it's not going to do justice to these characters. It's not going to let you get to know the characters, get to laugh with the characters, hear the language. In that story, you have a chance to meet Charlie several times. Maggie finishes her first day and she's running home. Ran on home, glad to be free of the head and shed. Oh, Charlie Robinson's wheat was tiny and green in the evening light, sight to be seen. Oh, Charlie, Charlie Robinson, Maggie is talking. He's the most wonderful farmer. He's 89, he looks 13. You didn't, have, you didn't have to come over, Charlie. Well, of course I did, Maggie. You finished the day. You did a bundle. I didn't do a bundle, but did more than half a bundle. Your wheat looks so good. Well, you know, Maggie, I told you there's wet seasons, dry seasons, and good seasons. going to be a good season. i got to show Mama the court. I'll see you later. Well, I hope so, Maggie. Now, at different times in the story, after a death, you meet Charlie. After a second death, you meet Charlie. And you hear the same thing. See you later. Well, I hope so, Maggie. Well, I hope so, Maggie. But it begins to mean more when you hear it again and again, just like music. Well, if it's going to mean more, you need time. You need space. You need length. What decides the length? The shape begins to evolve if I'm drawn to the story. In this case, the image was really a sound image. It was the image of these two girls and a, and a woman working in the uh, in the herring shed and the rhythm is you put your thumb in the gill maggie and you slip the rod in and there's a rhythm this is a rhythm maggie thumb in the gill open the mouth slip it on the rod in the head and shed oh it was cold in the head and shed i gathered a lot of information kept a notebook was fascinated with charlie's voice fascinated with maggie's struggle Maggie was going blind as I... No, I'm sorry, she was blind when I met her. And all of that, I wanted to get into a story. And the, the, the form that it found was a form that took 25 or 30 minutes. Currently, you're working with the, the Nassau Project. You have yes. You story you're working yes. on with Nassau. And you're, you're saying the history of the National Aerospace um, Agency. Yes, right. The history of the National Aerospace Agency. And you're trying to fit this in an hour? <laughs> yeah, well, that's about the way I feel about it right now. I did a lot of interviews at the Johnson Space Center. That That's in Houston, Texas. They, they're manned space. They send the astronauts up. I mean, I have but, a show where I try to do, I do my two ancestors who fought the Civil War. And <laughs> I, I mean, the Civil War, I mean, in an hour, I mean, forget it. I, I eventually decided on just little scenes out of the Civil War and they each yeah. take their turns doing them. I'm really curious about how you've decided, or maybe you haven't decided yet, how you're going to present this material. Well, uh, what you said is very interesting. I, I've decided to do a series of, of scenes. Uh, my structure is, is a very simple structure. It's two students, one an engineering senior at Northeast and a woman, and the other is getting his Ph.D. in uh, astrophysics at MIT. So I made up fictional characters, and their job, these two students, is to put on an hour presentation about NASA. Uh, so they have to select four scenes that will somehow touch on... Uh, on some of the really crucial moments and people in NASA. Uh, and and uh, the, the story is coming along. I'm hoping that it's going to really move people. And I'm hoping the story stretches, stretches out into time, way beyond our time now. 
Uh, I, I'll just say one thing, Eric, and let you ask another question. There are two spacecraft called the Voyagers. The Voyagers weigh about 1,800 pounds. The Voyagers set off in 1977, and they are still going. And in six or seven years, they will enter interstellar space. And they may continue going for a million years. And they are carrying a golden record with wonderful music. So I love that sense of it stretching out and maybe a civilization a million years from now will find this golden record and play it. And they will hear Mozart and they hear all music from India and China. Uh, so my point is, I'm hoping the story touches on, on a birth in NASA, one of the great events and some of the real struggles, tragedies. And also this extraordinary sense of stretching out, stretching out, sending a gift. President Carter put a, a few words uh, on the golden record, and the words are, this is a present from our small planet, a present. Now, that's an interesting word. This is a present, this golden record. At any rate, I hope a few scenes uh, just move the listeners enough to, to just think about the fact that we are we are now, for the first time in the history of this planet, entering into the solar system. We are slowly becoming citizens of the solar system. And perhaps in a thousand years, they'll look back and they'll say, well, it began back here. Well, in a moment, I'm going to open this call up. We have a bunch of people on the call, and I just want to offer you all to join in the conversation if you have a comment or a question. And I'm going to ask Jay one more question here. Let's just go back to this beginner thing again. As, as yes. beginning storytellers, would you help us to understand how we develop the uniqueness of our characters and our stories? Yeah, you bring up, we could spend the hour on that. <laughs> uh, because the word uniqueness is the word that really jumps out. What I love about storytelling is that it brings out our strengths. So even before characters, it's just finding your strength and really relaxing into those strengths. And Jackie Torrance, one of the great storytellers, she always sat down, ideally on a piano stool. That's where she was comfortable, and you could sense her power. Some storytellers love to play with, with language. Some are dramatic. Some are funny. What's wonderful is finding your strength. And I'm talking here about professional storytellers or just someone telling to a friend and just noticing, gosh, you know, I'm good at that. <laughs> you know, I'm good at a scary story or I have a quick wit. But taking that in, I've found giving workshops that that is very, very hard for adults uh, and I'm sure children to do, to, to say, I, I have a strength there. Let me play with that strength. And once you feel secure with that, your, your, your sense of a voice or ability to make character or, or imaginary stories or very realistic stories, once you settle into that strength, then you can explore, you know, oh, I don't do this well, I don't do that. Uh, but it's searching for your strength. It's very important. One of my strengths is character. That's what draws me to stories more than anything, characters. I'm just fascinated with imaginary characters or the real characters like uh, like Maggie Thomas. But I'm equally as intrigued with Michael the Grasshopper uh, and the, the characters he meets on his journey. So that's something I've drawn to. Uh, and to try to answer your question just briefly, I find that actions tell me a lot about a character. So I mentioned Simon, who gave up baking. Well, you learn earlier in the story that Simon, every day, he gave two loaves of bread to Sally, a little girl who had a dress with hundreds of bright patches because her family was so poor. He'd say, here you go, two loaves of bread for a penny. It's not what they call. Sure it is, Sally, sure it is. Now, from that action, you know this is a kind man. And that is crucial information to know this man who, who's hiding away has a great kindness in him. 
So action more than anything, but also voice, voice, since we're not just writing print, voice. Come on, Dory, here than a touch falls flat. The tone tells you, the pace, come on, Dory, the pace tells you. And then if you haven't gotten that, you hear the kid snickering. <laughs> Look at old Simon, where'd he get that hat? They always laughed at Simon. So two things. Voice, play with a voice. Can you find a voice? Can you find a body for your character? Can you get up and walk like your character? And then describe an action or two that is essential to your character. Find that action and you begin to know your character. Okay. Well, let's open up the call here. Hi, Aunt Jay, it's Millie. Hiya, Millie. Hi, um... I don't think I've ever asked you this. When did you decide or how did you decide which of your stories that you tell to turn into the picture books like Herman and Tulips and the other books you have? Let's see, Millie, if I can go back. Um, Raspberries will be coming out in the fall, which is nice uh, as a picture book. I guess it was that Peachtree came to me, Millie. Peachtree said, we like orange cheeks. And before that, I had to think a minute, before that, another company said Tulips would make a a nice picture book. They made that into a picture book, and then Peachtree bought that. And Peachtree heard me tell uh, Herman and Marguerite and thought it would be nice to have a story about under the earth. So a lot of that story, which my daughter Laura illustrated, is underneath the earth. It's, it's, It's the life of worms and and Peachtree said, we don't, have, we don't have much about what goes on underneath the, the earth. We don't have anything about a worm. So that's what drew them to, to that story. And I think Orange Cheeks, because every child, all of us, got in trouble. And it's a story about a little boy who gets in trouble. And his grandmother is wonderful about the trouble. She's an Orange Cheeks grandmother. Uh, so Millie, actually, they were the ones who decided. Uh, and for raspberries which you come out with a Philomel, which is a, the children's part of Penguin Books. The editor liked the rhythm, raspberries, and wanted to see if that could be captured oh, with, uh, with illustrations. Uh, but that also will have a CD, because she really wanted that raspberries, that rhythm uh, that goes through the story. Uh, so does that answer that one, Millie? Yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you for asking, Millie. Thanks for coming on. You listen to the I just stood to tell me with children. That was my binky. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a baby. That, that was a baby. That's the, But this is Priscilla Howe, and you are listening to the art of storytelling with children. Don't be fooled by that baby. Oh, go ahead. Hi, this is Shari Lynn. I just wanted to say hi and, and that it's great to hear you, Jay. Wow, great to hear your voice. Thanks for calling in. You're welcome. I really enjoyed hearing um, all that you had to say about your journey in storytelling. I know I've heard bits and pieces of it before, but it's great to hear it in this forum. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And I hope I'll see you at Cheering the Fire. Oh, well, unfortunately, I have to go to a wedding in Wyoming. Oh. So I'll miss you, yes. It was... Uh, set up a long time ago, and actually I'm telling a story and actually marrying the couple. Wow. <laughs> yes, right. Oh, so you do weddings, too. Well, I, I've done a couple for storytelling friends. Sh- Sherry Jean, why don't you tell people who might not have heard of sharing the fire before, why don't you tell us about it? Oh, uh, it's Sherry Lynn. Uh, sure, sharing the fire is the New England Storytelling Conference. Um, it's a wonderful place to hear stories and share stories and learn about storytelling. And it's in Rhode Island this weekend at the Crown Plaza in Warwick. And next year it'll be somewhere in New England. In, yes, it's always 20, in New England. And there's a wonderful spirit there. It's, it's a wonderful feeling there. It reminds me of the National Festival, the feeling there. Yeah, it, it, what it is, it's a place for all storytellers who come to to kind of um, put logs on the fire and stir up your own flames and then spread the fire out to your own communities at home that you touch. 
Yes, yes. Well, thank you, Sherry Lynn. You're welcome. Thank you. I want to ask, Jay, I want to ask you one more question here. Uh-huh. Um, I was thinking about this before because you've had a lot of success outside in terms of doing projects that seem to be reaching outside of the storytelling movement. And I was wondering how, when you do, you, you do theater events, like you'll do, you'll be at a theater for several months? Yeah, usually about a month is a run. A run, right. Are you selling it as storytelling or are you calling it a monologue or are you calling it uh, a play? How do you market it or how do you define it? That is usually up to the theater and often they say written and performed by J. O'Callaghan. And then once their audience comes in the program, they'll, they'll use the word storyteller. They're, uh, they're often a little uh, wary of the word because they're not sure their audience will understand it's meant for adults. They have the title of the show, like The Great Auk. Yes. And then what they'll do is they'll just have written and performed by J.L. Callahan, and they won't mention the word storyteller at all in the advertising. In the actual program, it'll mention that you're a storyteller or that you've done this for many years. That's the way generally do it, yes. And then the reviewers will come and mention storytelling in the reviews often. Uh, I was in Albany doing uh, Pouring the Sun, and the reviewer said, uh, I wasn't going to go because I heard it's storytelling. But he said, uh, this was real theater. It was a wonderful review, but I'm so glad he changed his mind and came. Well, we're, we're out of time, so I'm going to have to ask you for your offer. Do you have an offer for us tonight? Uh, my offer is for the first uh, ten uh, listeners who uh, just send in an email. Uh, you can choose any, any CD on our website, and we'll send that to you free. So do they have to join your mailing list? Is that part of the deal? Uh, yeah, we'll, if we have them, we'll ask them if we can put them on the mailing list. Okay, so if you send them an email, make sure you say that, that uh, you know, it's okay to put you on the mailing list. Right, right. And uh, just tell them. So I, I just want to take the opportunity here to offer to the audience that I have a free e-course called The Zen of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. It's at storytellingwithchildren.com slash storytelling uh, and it's a nine email course with seven emails about seven principles of storytelling that are really simple laid out and and jay o'callahan talked about a lot of these principles this hour and so if you want to go into other details of the parts of storytelling or you just want to get a an overview of of how to be a storyteller and present in front of an audience this really covers it in detail and also um, just a reminder, if you're listening to this call, that there's a website, storytellingwithchildren.com, and on that website are 80-plus interviews of storytellers, just like this one, who have done all sorts of amazing things, all sorts of interviews. I, I have interviews with, with people about just how to do historical storytelling, interviews about how to organize storytelling events, small and large, and interviews on how to be present on a stage without speaking a word, interviews about how to tell stories without moving, uh, interviews how to sing storytelling, how to do poetry, poetry storytelling, and it goes on and on. Wow. So check that out, storytellingwithchildren.com. So Jay, you got any last words for the international storytelling movement? Well, uh, I think the main word is, is listening. Just uh, storytelling uh, depends on listeners and for the storytellers to find those listeners that that will kind of bring any story alive and bring along. And for those that have children, it's such a gift to tell stories to kids, to read them or to make them up. Uh, I've met so many adults who make up stories about all oh, these two little characters in their mailbox, and then they, uh, these children, children grow up and they never forget that. It's just such a gift of your voice, your time, your imagination your sense of humor. Uh, so, so just tell. Tell when you have a chance. Tell. And, and look for your strengths, you know, whether you're a professional storyteller or you're just you know, telling to a friend occasionally. Uh, really take that on, uh, that I'm going to take a look and own my strengths. Own my strengths. Name them. So those are my last words. <laughs> Well, I, I think this idea, we've been talking about this hour of sound, um, that we 
as storytellers or as human beings are drawn to sounds, mm. that we are caught in sounds, mm. that we are we open up to sounds, and that sounds they they transition through just about any emotional blockage and prejudice and a listener may have they just they just open the mind up like a little can opener and they they go right into the heart and right into the soul yes yes and i i feel like i as a teller could do a better job of using sound recently i've started using bells in my mm. shows as a transition between stories mm. and i've been thinking listening to jay o'callahan talk for the last hour listening to you talk jay i just feel like Wow, there's there's a real potential here of just letting my voice go. Yes. Of just letting myself play with sound so that when I get to the to the telling, the the finished product, I have a little bit of that play left over in the product that can that can draw out those listeners who may be caught up in their idea of storytelling and, and get them to relax into the reality. Yeah, that's great, great. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Eric. It's been delightful to talk to you, and you've done an amazing job, just tremendous work for storytelling. So even though lobster fishermen right near College Atlantic, where I'm an alumni in Bar Harbor, Maine, drop their traps in the water and rock their boats with astonishment when they hear me say it. This is Brother Wolf, and you've been listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.